Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the East India Company. We are so excited to welcome back to the podcast our first returning guest, Sharmini Kumar. Sharmini is the founder and artistic director of 24 Carat Productions, a production company based in Melbourne, Australia, which, among many other projects, hosts the annual Austin Con. She has written, directed, and produced many performance pieces, short films, and radio documentaries. Sharmini loves Austin's humor and wit, and particularly likes to explore issues that are not often highlighted in adaptations of Austin's work. She has presented on the East India Company at both Austin Con and the 2022 Virtual Jane Con. Her side gig, as she likes to say, is working as a medical doctor. Welcome, Sharmini. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having me twice. I hadn't thought about it, but yes, I'm an excited return guest. That's so exciting. We are delighted. Absolutely. Yes, we're very excited to have you back for Austin Con as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> so we are basing our conversation today in Sense and Sensibility and on Colonel Brandon's military career. We learn early on that Colonel Brandon was based in the East Indies, but he makes overt references to his career when he shares with Eleanor a little bit of his personal history with his first love, Eliza, who married his brother. So here's a quote from the book. He says, But can we wonder that with such a husband to provoke inconstancy, and without a friend to advise or restrain her, for my father lived only a few months after their marriage, and I was with my regiment in the East Indies, she should fall. Had I remained in England, perhaps, but I meant to promote the happiness of both by removing from her for years, and for that purpose, have procured my exchange. Kind of some deep history there. <laughs> the family history is. It's, it's a lot. Heavy. Yeah. 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 And he was the second son. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't going to, you know, in- inherit the big, um, until obviously his brother uh, passed away, he wasn't going to inherit. So he had to, had to do something. And obviously he didn't want to be a clergyman. So soldier it was. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Packed up. Wanted to be away from this situation at home. So... Sharmini, throughout the novel, we only get these very small glimpses into Colonel Brandon's military career, which are really just these passing references to the East Indies. Can you tell us a bit more about where Brandon was likely serving and what the British military was doing there? So they do specifically reference not just the East Indies, but India, when they talk about nabobs. So you know he was somewhere in India. Also, the majority of the British presence in that region was in India. Um, they'd basically given up the, what they called the East Indies, which is more what we would call Indonesia now, to the Dutch for the spice trade. And at that time, which is the late 18th century we're looking at, the British were like heavily, heavily into India, which the whole region, what they called India, is probably now what we would call India, Pakistan, um, even as far as like Bangladesh, they tried for Afghanistan but never managed it. Yeah, so that's that that whole region. And the British had no specific. The British Crown really 
wasn't doing anything there. They would occasionally meet the French there for, for wars. The, the English and French managed to have wars between the English and French, like everywhere. Right. <laughs> like uh, that's, I think, what you call the Franco-Indian War in the US. Uh, it was a Seven Years' War that the British, the British call it. So they just kind of took their skirmishes abroad <laughs> and India was one of those places. But the majority of what was happening there at the time was commercial interest by a private company and that's the British East India Company. And the company had its own soldiers. The company had commanders and um, even soldiers of the crown that basically served with the company as, as it's a kind of weird thing that we think of basically trained military people being for hire as mercenaries to a corporation, which is not completely unknown even in our time. But we kind of think of it as a, as a not a great thing, but that was just normal for them. And so whatever the sort of arrangement was, it's almost certain that Brandon was in India militarily protecting the trade of the British East India Company. Yeah, it's not really a gallant kind of defending the honour of Britain or right. sort of, he's there purely, purely to protect trade, really. Right. And trade in an empirical situation. Oh, tra- trade as an empire, like, and particularly in that, that second half of the 18th century, the, the British East India Company made it really clear that they were not there to meet with Indian traders on their own terms. They were, they were like, we're here to basically take you over and we're having everything on our terms. Started with the Battle of Plassey in 1757, where the infamous gentleman Clive of India defeated a bunch of Indian troops and was was just basically like, "All right, now you owe me taxes. Yeah, pay up, and you do what I say," kind of thing. Well, and because you kind of mentioned already that there is this very deep relationship between the East India Company and like the military, you know, because he's he is a colonel. Colonel Brandon is there in India most likely helping with the East India Company. And so would his role, what role that would actually be? Yeah, like how are the British Army and the East India Company sort of linked up yeah. during this time? So, so in India, it's, it's the East India Company that run everything, yeah? With the, the you know, occasional battle with the French or whatever. But you, you, even then, the troops were basically working together and it was, you know, one thing. But as far as the majority of day-to-day stuff goes, the company are in charge and they, they had some, you know, English officers that they would work with, so obviously like Colonel Brandon. They had a lot of Indian, again, mercenaries, people for, you know, soldiers for hire that were called sepoys. And they were tasked with like the constant defence of and protection of the East India Company's trade, their kind of to protect them against any Indian rulers who might want to take back some of their territory to enforce the kind of, you know, taxation and other things like that that were, that were being imposed on the people by the, the company. That was their job. So it's both offensive and defensive. It's kind of, you know, going on the offense to say, we want this resource, we're going to help the East India Company attain that yes. resource. But then also defensive in terms of we're going to make sure that this resource gets out of India to England, and we're going to defend that as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's all of those things. It was a massive army, mm. yeah. The majority of those people were, like, particularly, you know, the lower ranks were um, Indian people, but it was really, really large numbers. 
So was the East India Company, were they contracting with the British army? Or was the British government just sending soldiers over because they, because they wanted the East India Company to be successful? It's an incredibly blurry line because, at, you know, at this point in time, so many people in the British Parliament have shares in mm. the British East India Company. Mm-hmm. So they're not gonna they're not gonna vote for anything that's gonna you know they're just like anything you want you're gonna you're gonna get it. Like when these regiments got there, they were they were basically the person they were answering to was a company person. Right. This was definitely company command. Company command. Yeah, yeah. And some of the some of the big battles again. This is slightly before Brandon's time, but but Robert Clive was not even a uh, was not even a military person. But perhaps for your American listeners don't haven't heard of Robert Clive. Robert Clive. A British man who decided to work with the company in a kind of administrative role got there. He was he'd been a bully as a kid, a really kind of nasty character. Got there, didn't love the admin side of it, but then saw these opportunities to expand the holdings of the of the company. Basically, took his soldiers, won a couple of significant, very significant battles, Battle of Plassey, as I mentioned in seventeen fifty seven. And then just basically became like the richest person in the whole of Europe in terms of like, you know, monetary wealth, bought castles, bought influence in parliament. That was a thing that was happening in the UK. People would make so much money in the British East India Company and take Indian wealth back to England. And with that money would buy a seat in parliament, basically. And it was a big concern at the time. So when Willoughby kind of talks about nabobs, a little bit sort of disparagingly, is sort of talking about those sorts of people that would flash all this new wealth around would be a little bit concerning because people are like, oh, I don't know how we feel about these people having influence in parliament. Mm. Forgetting, of course, that, you know, the House of Lords is literally <laughs> just a very rich landhold. Right. <laughs> so it's part of the dem- democratic process. So this is what's happening. So people who were, weren't even military people were, were running these battles, were in charge of these troops, were kind of setting up these offensives to take over and to maintain that control. Well, and if you make enough money that you can then buy a seat in parliament to then pass the kind of laws that are going to be really favorable to your business interests, and then you can just Absolutely. keep perpetuating. Absolutely. Yes. And as I said, it's partly those people buying that influence, but also so many people in parliament had shares in the British East India Company. It was a corporation too big to fail. Right. And like the number of people in positions of power who are profiting off of this colonialism. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And what you've been describing is reframing Brandon's career a little bit for me, because obviously he's over there in a position of power for the British East India Company, and then he inherits Delaford. Yes. It's a clever kind of move on Jane Austen's part to then have him inherit, because the money then isn't, his, his estate isn't seen then as like, tainted by that kind of either the, the colonialism aspect or the nouveau riche aspect of it either. It's, he still comes and inherits old money, so he's still respectable in that society. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but, I mean, there's, there's a lot of speculation about Jane Austen's connection to the British East India Company. She, her family had connections with Warren Hastings, who was the governor of the East India Company, and who, and who was the sort of person who, unlike sort of Robert Clive, who came in and was just like, Let's just pillage. Let's just take what we can. I actually hate India, but I'm taking taking it all with me. Um, was a bit more of a like, 
oh, this place is kind of nice. This, these people have a really interesting culture. But he had been quite, quite heavily criticised for, for his behaviour and the behaviour of the East India Company and was impeached by Parliament. And there's sort of speculation about whether, whether Brandon is sort of based on this character who spent some time there but who was a bit more of a, a gentle coloniser, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. And we can kind of understand Marianne's response to Brandon as well in, in perhaps a slightly different way too, that if she knows this about him, she's, she, she's a little bit dismissive of the way, you know, he, you know if there were mosquitoes there, obviously. But also, you know, I feel like Marianne's the sort of person who, who probably wouldn't necessarily be a big fan of military things and probably not necessarily, she'd probably be a big fan of like Indi- Indian things, like Indian textiles, because the British East India Company's point was the, the majority of what they were doing was, was in the textile trade. Right. It's the muslin, right? Muslin. Muslin was, is, was the specialty fabric that was product of India. So she would, she would love all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, reports trickling through the newspapers about the treatment of Indian workers in warehouses and things like that. I'm not guessing Marianne wouldn't be a fan. But she, she would also be quite happy, at, particularly in the early stages of the book, to, to have another reason to dislike Colonel Brandon. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. <laughs> yeah. So there's that level of Brandon that I hadn't really thought about much before reading about the British East India Company, where he's, I mean, yeah, he's, a, he's Alan Rickman, so we love him. But right. he's, he's also so incredibly tied up with this colonial project. Right. You know, it's impossible to overemphasize the impact that the East India Company had on England, on the government of the time, just the way that we understand this entire era. But what are some of the ways that you see the East India Company having the biggest impact on Austin's world? So many, so many things. I mean, like I said, textiles were their kind of stock in trade and what they made so much of their money off, particularly initially. Those beautiful cotton gowns, which, you know, you can't think of an Austin adaptation without them, that, you know, those beautiful lightweight fabrics that, that were woven by hand. And so initially the British project was to, was to take over that and just capture the, that market literally by, you know, buying those whole bolts of cloth and, and using them, but then eventually shut down that market by industrialization and sort of as we're getting into the 19th century, shifting that to machine produce to the point where there's projects on to today to try and reclaim some of those weaving techniques that were basically, you know, hand weaving techniques that are incredibly intricate. Like artisanal, like you really have to have Artis- the skill. Artisanal and, and were completely lost. The, the, the trade was lost partly because of the British East India Company and people are now trying to recreate what was being done at that time. So in that, those textiles and even the headwear, you think of some of those um, adaptations where people were wearing kind of turban style women more than more than men wearing turban style headgear. So I, th- I see it, a lot of that influence in the dress of the time. So just the look, when we think re- Regency the look. look. Yeah, the, absolutely. The Regency look is, is really, really tied to India. It's, this is sort of moving away from um, from sense and sensibility, but uh, Henry Tilney prides himself on his knowledge of muslins. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. And yeah, <laughs> so I've, I've wondered, you know, where General Tilney was, oh, like sure. where he generaled. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's been, you know, fanfic that I've read that's been like, oh yeah, it must have been the East India, India Company because of, you know, Henry growing up to know about muslins. 
I mean, even tea, like such a quintessential British thing. Um, and, you know, you, you think about Regency, the classic lady in the Empire line gown drinking tea. And tea is, you know, is a British East India Company thing. The tea that was dumped into Boston Harbour was British East British India East Company. India Co- yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and the, the, you know the whole sort of uh, process of uh, acquiring the tea was you know buying it from the Chinese and then um, smuggling opium into into China in order to in order to acquire uh, funds for tea and, and and that tea doesn't grow in Britain exactly <laughs> right yeah. So I see it really in lots of those little things. Also, just I always wonder now with those houses like in Norland Park, where does all that money come from? You know, large, large percentages of people who had investments had investments in the British East India Company, as well as obviously, you know, slave plantations and other things in Mansfield Park. But so much of this, the wealth of this country is coming from India. It's there in the background, but it's it's there when I see adaptations. It's there when I read the novels. It's just just in the back of my mind. Yeah, that inescapability of India's impact on the way that England yeah, fundamentally yeah. functions. That's right. It's the soup. It's the soup that the, the they're swimming in in Britain at this point in time, in England. So at this point in time, definitely can't pretend that Austin isn't aware of it. Yeah, she she knew. She knew. So yeah, her her cousin was Warren Hastings' goddaughter. Hmm. Possibly actual daughter. We're not sure possibly on that Possibly actual Ooh, daughter. Scandal. But yes, possible natural daughter. The, the family during, during the impeachment of Warren Hastings in the 1790s were very pro-Hastings. They would read the newspapers and would be like, I hope he gets out of this one okay. Well, and Sharmini, you had mentioned kind of in passing earlier that there is a passage in Sense and Sensibility where both Marianne and Willoughby are being pretty dismissive about Brandon and the references to India particularly. Can you tell us a bit more about why you think Austen maybe embedded that specific scene or references into this, into this text? Obviously, I can only speculate. I just wonder if she's kind of hinting at the kind of ways that people who don't have a lot of experience with India just think of India. And in one sense, like we were just talking about, that Marianne has an appreciation for pretty things, but doesn't necessarily even connect that to India. Like there's a way in which she could have said, oh, India, you know, I have a gown that's Indian Muslim, you know. And obviously she kind of wouldn't do that because she's wanting to connect India to Brandon to unpleasant things. But to be that sort of dismissive about India and about people who have been to India, not dismissive even in a way that's like, oh, they were doing a bad thing, but just like, ugh, it's like not, it's not a grand thing to be doing. It's not a, it's not a, not that exciting a thing to be doing. It's, it's just such a common thing that and just like Marianne going like, no big deal, because so many people did. I, I do think she's kind of reflecting a, a bit of a mood of like, you try, you try and talk yourself up. Not that Brandon is trying to talk himself up, but people try to talk him up for this thing and everybody does it really. There's a lack of glamour attached to this for her. <laughs> There's a lack of glamour attached to it, from a, from, particularly from that upper class perspective mm. of like, you know, we are the landed gentry. Well, it's interesting that 
this whole scene with her and Willoughby, it's not rooted in sort of, like you said, condemnation for these sort of imperialist actions for like horrible things that are being done in this country. It's really this kind of rooted in like a snobbery of it's not that big of a deal anyway. And even if you made a lot of money, like that's new money. That's right. That's right. And But I mean, I do like to think that Marianne was kind of a little bit aware and probably sure. had that, that side of it as well. But, you know, the, the stuff that the British East India Company were doing, in addition to like taxing, taxing the heck out of people and just basically decimating the, the, the cotton weaving industry for, for their own purposes, the country went through famines when, when food production was scarce and continued to tax the whole way through that. You know, sent, uh, sent soldiers around to collect taxes from starving people during a famine so that shareholders could continue to make money. That is what they were doing. But Marianne's like, do you know what? I'm not so stressed about that, but, you know, yeah, just, right. don't, just don't think of yourself as a, as a big deal. <laughs> well, and, and in that same scene, she's also trying to impress Willoughby, and Willoughby is the one oh, yeah. who's like full on disdain right. of Brandon. Right. Yeah. And so you kind of, there's a certain amount of Marianne trying to imitate the behavior that she thinks Willoughby will find most appealing. And Willoughby's the one who's just like, he's just, he's pretty mean, actually. Well, he's really trying to put down Brandon. And so it's kind of like, it's very revealing what Willoughby's game is. Yes. So particularly the use of the word nabob is a like really indicated that new money from India was basically is what is what very specific type of money. And I mean, you know, Willoughby's a fine one to talk. He he's dependent for an, on an inheritance. Like, yeah, he's he's got a, he's got zero ethical high ground. No, zero, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And you're right. I think Marianne is taking her cue about that. Um, I don't think she's being dis- dishonest in terms of her own feelings. But yeah, I, I do wonder. I do wonder. I do like to think that in a slight in slightly different company, she does have a bit more kind of ethical concern for for things that happen. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much of Marianne. You know, setting aside Marianne, it's not as if Willoughby is sort of like giving a speech about the atrocities committed in, oh, you no, know, no, no. the gain for financial gain. You know, right. it's not about that at no. all. It's really just about putting Brandon mm-hmm. down. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, I guess in, in terms of their relationship, I feel like Willoughby is definitely not somebody who even thinks about colonialism or atrocities or any right. of that kind yeah. of stuff. Right. And I do feel like Marianne does have the capacity to think through those things sure. and probably does yeah. in some other reflective, non-Willoughby-centred moments have that kind of reflection. It's the sort of thing where like the East India Company was not doing good things, but that is not where Willoughby's criticism was coming Correct. from right. at all. Yeah, I don't think that he would probably actually have any ethical qualms about it whatsoever. No, I don't I think he would. No, I agree. I agree. His dismissiveness also, because it's not rooted in those things, is also a pretty damning character indictment. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, yeah. where he's where he's kind of oblivious to the fact that India is relevant for so many reasons, but then but then the fact that he's also also mm-hmm. not culturally conscious enough to even care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, none of that conversation really engages with Indian people. Well, India is anything other than a place for... British people to go to and take stuff. It's so true. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's something that we've tried, I've tried to sort of look at in the stuff that I produce as well. So our adaptation of Sense and Sensibility that that we produced earlier this year, 
we really tried to dig into what that means that Brandon was a, you know, agent of the British East India Company and what it means for Marianne to kind of have to deal with that. We set out slightly later than the probable um, setting of the book, so, you know, to talk about all kinds of things with with the British East India Company and sugar and um, all the different trades that they were involved in. And for podcast listeners, there is a podcast called Empire that is by the British historians, William Dalrymple and Anita Anand, who literally wrote the book on the British East India Company. The book is by William Dalrymple. It's called The Anarchy. It's a very good book. And Anita Anand is a British Indian historian who's, who's written a lot about a slightly later period. And together, they're a fabulous team. I highly recommend the podcast. Yeah, thanks. It's called Empire. They d- deal with lots of things outside the Regency era, but there's some good background about the British East India. Love that resource. Thank you. Well, Sharmini, where can our listeners find you online, learn more about you, and find out more about 24 Karat Productions, Austin Con, sure. where they can sure. buy tickets to Austin Con? <laughs> okay, so the easiest spot is at 24caratproductions.com. 24 the number, carrot the vegetable productions.com. Um, and that'll have links in it to AustinCon and um, upcoming productions. We're having a very Austin-heavy couple of years with 24 Carat. We do do other things, but, we, you know, having done Sense and Sensibility, we've got Persuasion coming up and Mansfield Park as well. So, And, again, um, Mansfield Park is, is one that I've taken it and gone, all right, well, what if Fanny Price's sailor dad was actually one of the Indian sailors that had come back on the boats and was stuck basically in England because they wouldn't give him a job on a ship going back the other way. What if that was one of the extra reasons that the family were a little bit mm, about Fanny? So we've got a biracial Fanny, Fanny Price written into that script. And so hopefully going to be a really interesting look at that, not specifically British East India Company, but the experience of being biracial in Regency England. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we'll be streaming all of that stuff as well. So people all over the world. Yeah, so Austin Con is streamed. All our stuff we try to uh, video and stream because we want to we want to share it with as many people as possible. So yeah, awesome. And Austin Con is coming right around the corner. Austin Con is coming right up. It is on November the fifth in Australian time. <laughs> <laughs> important distinction. <laughs> it's an important distinction. So that is a Friday night, I believe, for Americans. But just you know, fun way to spend a Friday night. But also because a lot of our streaming stuff, we'll we'll make videos um, available for a couple of weeks afterwards, Perfect. so you'll be able to catch up on it. And if if you're not able to participate in live stuff online, we've got we've got lots of stuff. We've got we've got the two of you. Tell us what you'll be talking about. We will be talking about circulating libraries. So very, very excited. excited about that. Yeah, we've got lots lots of different speakers, lots of different activities that you'll be able to participate in online as well as. You know, if you want to t- turn up in person. Well, thank you again, Sharmini. It is a delight to have you on again. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Sharmini Kumar for joining us for this discussion. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at the thing about Austin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about John Thorpe's reference to the monk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.